Coyote Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. Kojo Regal is a singer-songwriter born and raised in Trinidad. His music has a reggae sound with a melting pot of genres, including soca, dancehall, R&B, and pop music. He found his voice in Trinidad writing with his friends and in 1989 they formed a boy band inspired by Boys to Men called New Creation, writing and singing their own songs. They became an overnight sensation leading to the album Spirits of Gold released in 1998. Kojo later moved to London to further his music career as a solo artist. Working his way from the small stages of Trinidad to working with some of the world's biggest artists. After moving to London, Kojo worked as a respected A&R scout for Craig David's producer Mark Hill at his Stoosh Records imprint. He has collaborated with a number of artists including Jethro, Alone Star Sheeran, Kay Warren, MC Vapor, Audley Anderson and Risky Javan. Up next on Celeb Savant, we've got Kojo Regal. Where do we find you in the world? How are you doing and what's happening in your life? Um, if I'm in, in London, um, East Acton, London, you know, it's, it's the west part of London. Yeah, I'm happily residing here, my wife and kids. And Let's rewind to the very beginning of your journey in the entertainment industry. So at what age, whether it was a child or teenager, did you decide, cool, this is my path? And how did that accumulate to where we are currently? So your entertainment industry journey. All right. Well, I never knew when I was listening to rap music that I'd be an entertainer because, um, you know, I found myself you know, listening to and the vibes of um like early rap when it came well not when it came out but you know just like just when I found myself listening to it was like listening to like LL Cool J and and um Slick Rick and stuff like that and um fiddling with it trying to rap you know my own little raps and stuff like that sometime in my life my mother bought me like a keyboard uh you know and uh you know I was wowed by you know just having a bit musical instrument in front of me I dabbled with it it was a kind of a Casio keyboard type you know so um you know we just kind of play with the tones and you know first thing I told myself to play was like Axel F and I didn't have much music called people around me so you know I just kind of like think about you know just whatever things that came across my my path you know um like aha you know um pick on me and those singles you know was kind of like what kind of came my way to kind of learn to play easily. Because I live in St. Tans, which is, it's, uh, it's in Port of Spain, Trinidad and Tobago, where I was born. We, we had like some guys that I used to play football with. They would come, um, past my way, go into like a neighborhood called Cascade and they would be going on this kind of mission that was a musical mission. I heard where somebody was putting together a group and, um, I kind of being very inquisitive tried to find out, you know, more and more about, you know, who, what, what they're up to, you know, because you know, I played football with them, but then they had this other activity going on. Like, oh, what's this thing you're trying to do? You know, like, it's, you know, you're singing or something like, and um, this guy, he had like a little kind of, he was a church going guy, but he was trying to help them form a sort of a acapella type, do up type singing kind of thing, you know? So I followed him one evening and asked the leader, at, you know, at the time, his name was Kevy. And uh, I said, yeah, can I get a hang, you know, a little bit? I got a keyboard, you know, <laughs> he's just coming, you know, see if I could kind of just jam with you a little bit, you know. And um, he said, yeah, come along. And, you know, so I came there, not being a real musician, really, you know, but I came with my keyboard in hand and I said, you yeah, know, I just kind of power you all and see, you know, see what you're up to. So he was trying to teach him a little bit about Boys to Men and 
And, uh, you know, this is the groups at the time they were going, you know, that they were up like, uh, um, you know, the acapella and the, so like the soul groups were like Joe the Sea and mm-hmm. the men and stuff. And, you know, so the ideas were kind of there, what they were trying to do, but they would actually learn church songs, you know, that, like acapella. Everything the, the guys, um, his name is David, you know, David Paris, uh, everything he was trying to teach him was kind of in line with being in sync with singing for church reasons, you know, because he was kind of a gospel head and you know to the idea was he was teaching them church songs and stuff mm-hmm. but we've been you know young and impressionable you know we love what was going on at the time and we didn't move away we learned the church songs you know and we went out and sung a little few church songs but um we started getting into boys men and, and singing you know some of those uh, you know those harmonious type of r&b you know things were happening at the time you know so yeah from there we went on to like a few competitions on tv and you know the girls started to get to know us we became a little popular with the you know the, you know the in crowd and stuff like that and we you know we tried to you know be the cool boys that we were you know the group was called new creation and uh you know we, we became very popular in, in trinidad and tobago um as tv sensations you know who could sing acapella and do do ups type of things we didn't win the, the top competition but which was called party time but you know we were well known now and uh from there i kind of pushed the border and said um hey uh i kind of learned a little bit of a rapping um why don't we kind of learn to rap this song that i wrote you know because i was like drumming in schools and stuff and just making up my own raps and stuff like that you know but didn't really learn how to write then songs and stuff but you know i just kind of just fiddled with rap that's what kind of came out of me easily at the time and uh one thing led to another we had a demo and before you know it eddie grant heard the demo and then he gave the group a recording deal and we yeah we flew to his place in barbados and started to record an album and then how did that progress so you recorded the album and what were the next steps we recorded the album eddie grant and his business manager mike dolan fell out they had a massive court battle right over the label that they started ice records yeah i mean eddie went his way and mike dolan went his way you know at the time we didn't really know mike dolan was but i got to know him in the end because what happens we we were signed to eddie's label but out of the deal our manager made a decision to opt out of the deal we had already recorded an album with Eddie Grant. Um, we spent a lot of the time living at his house, you know, wine and dine by him. It was a lovely place in Barbados. And then only to find out that we're now opting out of that deal. It's the most unknown, unplayed to me the reasons why, because we were teenagers at the time, you know, he just asked us, you know, what do we want to do? And we just kind of said, okay, well, all right, your decision's the best, you know. We got out of the deal only to resign to Mike Dolan, his business partner. Co- competitor, right? We re-signed to his label in the UK and we came over to the UK and re-recorded the whole album from scratch. Yeah. The exact album. Um, I don't remember if we added an extra song, but, but we did record one extra song, but I, I'm not sure if it was on the album. But anyway, the fact is we did the album over in London. I think that's why we wanted to come to London because we had recorded a cover of Hey Jude, which is like kind of synonymous with the Beatles. And yeah. with the loss of Eddie, we wasn't sure if we could re-release or release the album in UK, I think it was might have been the US territories, and we kind of felt a little bit aligned to UK. And so, so Mike Dolan, the deal might have appealed to my manager more, and we came back here and recorded it. Um, after that, we went on a, a UK tour. UK got to know us. The single blew up. You know, it got into the charts of the box, um, which is one of those big competitive uh, TV stations at the time. The video was amazing. It was done in in Tobago. You know, um, mm-hmm. it was great. You know, showing up a sunny side to. Um, the Beatles, Hey Jude, you know, it was reggae, you know, 
Um, we were young and Caribbean, and it was really, really beautiful. R&B and reggae mixed up in one, you know, coming from Trinidad and Tobago. It was, it was, it was a great start for us, and yeah, <laughs> brought me here to UK. So, how long were you with the group for, and when did you become solo? Came to the UK, and we sort of like finished our entry into the UK around 1999. The group, we were back in Trinidad trying to figure out our next steps, you know, uh, as we finished the album and the tour and everything. And management was kind of like in, in uh, uh, we was kind of like arm's length with management because we're like, we were kind of, you know, as groups do, you know, to kind of like, you know, the issues develop and, you know, they, they have questions about how things are done and stuff like yeah. that. So we decided, they wanted to, um, we all decided that we want to do it sort of our own without the manager. And we went to America, which um, a manager was courting us in America to come and, and maybe um, look into a new deal, new option. We were R&B bound, so we thought, why not go to America? We got there and we started being caught by different labels and stuff like that. And uh, But unfortunately, the lead singer, he didn't really uh, gel with the street nature of the management, you know? And he thought it was really rough-edged and um, unlike how we were looked after in the UK and stuff like that. So he, he sort of made a decision to, you know, to leave, well, leave or not cooperate and that kind of put us in a predicament we couldn't do anything in the u.s because we our lead singer we depended on his you know his talent right i wasn't really a a lead singer per se you know i was just kind of like writing and you know that was my ideas but i kind of spearheaded the u.s move movement then we came to a stall a stall and i decided okay well i'll come to london and look into renewing our second album option deal yeah the label was very much in in talks with me and they, they saw me as a communicator for the band. So I said, I'll come to London and see if we could work up a second album. I got here within two months and um, it came a phone call that one of our guys died in a car crash in oh, New York. I don't know. It was just, it was the worst thing ever. The group we were lost, you know, we were disillusioned. I was here in London and um, nobody knew what to do. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, very young at the time. And it's it just kind of like, you know, it was a whirlwind of events, you know, in Trinidad, we were such a big band in Trinidad and was catastrophic, you know, to uh, what we did in Trinidad was very different to what Trinidadians do. They make music that's Calypso and Soca. We made a blend of music that combined some of that, but we were headed towards R&B and pop. The first record I released was sort of Calypso Soca oriented, but I rapped on it. So it was very different from what Calypso and Soca normally is. They sing, you know. I rapped a single and it was like, whoa, it was the very most different thing that came out of Trinidad, you know? Um, and uh, we were kind of revolutionizing music. So when death of our member, Rocky, uh, we really wouldn't show how to come up from that. I stayed in London somewhat as a result, but it's kind of like it was a place for me to find myself. Oh, my, my wife was, was my girlfriend at the time. Yeah. She helped me through it. It was the toughest period of my life. I And uh, it took me a long time to get over it. I really wasn't sure what I was doing for a long time. I started to get into music uh, somewhat through my uncle-in-law. He had a record shop. His name's Smokey Joe. He's kind of a reason. He kind of nurtured me through the music game a bit, you know, because he was working in the record business. You know, he put out records, you know, for a long time. Um, but it was mainly Soka records that he invested in. But because he knew the nature of the business, you know, I think he um, kind of took me on his wing. Uh, my dad passed away, at, you know, so I didn't really have a father figure. So Smokey was kind of like indirectly involved in my life. Because my wife was, you know, my first person to go to. She was my girlfriend at the time. But um, somewhat Smokey was always kind of like influential from the side. I didn't realize how important he was until, you know, now I realize how close we are and how much we do together. But um, I walked through the industry, um, 
trying to figure out what do I do with my talent. The label was still kind of there, but we, we didn't have nothing to go on because the group wasn't there anymore. Um, so I kind of like tried to think, oh, well, should I learn to produce? Should I learn to, you know, should, I can write, but should I learn to produce? I tried, you know, um, I had an ear for music and I started to listen to what is A&R. And I sort of found myself trying to incline myself to be an A&R person. You know, I always admired the A&R people, Simon Cowles and, you know, the greats, you know, um, you know, Puffy and, and, uh, you know, the guys who had ears for listening to music and discovering what's, what's talent. And I was like, you know, trying to learn, okay, what, how to be an A&R scout. Eventually I found myself working my way in the hands of being an A&R scout. I saw a record that came out when I came to London. It had the name of a producer who produced a remix for Craig David you know, who's big in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came to London, I didn't really know what Garage was, you know, and the first single that I remember hearing coming out of the airplane was Rewind by Craig David. I thought, what is this music? I was like, it's really weird. But anyway, it was it was what UK was built on for urban music at the time, you know, and from there, I was lucky to see a telephone number. I remember it in my head literally now you know like when i saw it like who puts telephone numbers on, on our cd you know and i saw the guy's name and it's like Nuraj shark and like there's a number i gotta call it i was like yo so you know i just just that gut thing and i like you know so i called it and Nuraj responded and he said hey you know hey um i said i'm kojo you know i come from trinidad i give him a little bit of a story i said i can rap you know and he said uh you know okay come up come up to my studio but at the time i was not just it, I, I wait i was well past rapping i'd learned how to wrote write songs because I had to write for the group. I had to discover how to write everyone's vocal range, mm-hmm. you know? And I made, I made the worst demos trying to mimic, you know, you know, the, the singers in the band because one sounded like Johnny Gill, one sounded like Michael Jackson, one was like the bass man from Boys to Men, you know? I had to learn everybody's voice range and write for them, yeah? And that kind of forced me to learn how to sing. My demos were awful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they used to laugh at me, but do that. I learned how to sing, yeah. you know? Um, I'm a good singer now, I would say. You know, but back then I was like, whoa, these demos, I could not, I couldn't even listen to myself trying to make these <laughs> demos. It was the funniest time. But, um, yeah, so, you know, but anyway, um, when I, when I talked to Naraj, I said, you know, hey, I can rap, you know, and, um, you know, cause I wasn't leaning on my voice as a singer yet, as mm-hmm. an independent artist, you know, I was like, you know, I, I think I know how to rap. I can write lyrics and stuff like that. So Naraj said, come up, throw demos at me, and we became great friends, and, you know, and eventually said he started a label, it's called Berserk. Okay, what do you want? He said, um, I, I think you're kind of ear, ears to the street, because I was going around looking for clubs to sing and do open mics at the time. Yeah. And he said, um, maybe you can find me some acts and stuff. I said, okay, cool, I'll try. And eventually, I found a few things that I thought was interesting, and I brought it back, and he said, hey, you know what, this one guy you know I like and then there was a group that I found called Case Close and it was like he's really like this group I didn't know that Naraj was actually working for an offshoot of Mark Hill who's the producer for Craig David at the time because they were okay. good friends they come from Southampton together and it was like you know st- studio buddies and uh, you know and they hung out in some so Southampton but Southampton is like miles away from from London and so I never you know clued up that Naraj came from the garage background the garage scene background you know because okay. he was living in West London Anyway, so when uh, I discovered the band Case Closed, he said, oh, yeah, I'd like to try and show them to my, my partner, uh, Mark, right? And I, then he said Mark Hill. And I was like, well, Mark Hill's name was big at the time because, you know, Lucian Grange was courting him as a producer because he did so well with Craig David. You know, by that time, Mark was working with like J-Lo and stuff like that and Christina Milan and, you know, great big singles and mm. stuff. So when I, I was like, you're working with Mark Hill. Wow. He took that demo that I found for Case Closed and he took it them and he signed into the label. The label was called Stush Records. I was happy that I made that 
discovery and you know signing for Mark Hill's you know, first label that he, you know he started off and you know I discovered the first act you know um think funnily they didn't go too far <laughs> you know they signed it they started getting into demo making and whatever I don't know they got into management issues and you know and so, you know as much as they were signed and announcing music week as they were signing to Mark Hill no sooner as you know if this is the way that's done you know and like okay well that deal was over <laughs> but it was me and my A&R kind of props. I was like, hey, you know what? Hey, uh, maybe I've got good ears, you know? So I moved on, but me and Naraz, we still, we're still good friends to this day and stuff. Um, I found myself in another little um, sort of label situation where my wife's cousin, she introduced me to some guy she was messing around with. Um, they formed a label called Perumbi Records. And I was like, you know, uh, hungry to be in the business, you know, of music and stuff like that. Uh, totally ignoring the fact that I'm, I have my own talent. I was just like, you know, just trying to be A&R and stuff. Got myself into this, you know, little kind of scenario. Um, okay, Peromi, um, they're looking for a guy. Next thing you know, hey, I'm A&R director. I'm like, whoa, title, A&R director for this label. Peromi Records, whoa, you know, with salary. And I'm like, okay, this is great. It was cool. I mean, it was like in the East End of London, Essex. And I was like happy to just make a great discovery in an artist that was already doing well on a underground level in let's say drum and bass and garage right he, you know he's amazing rapper and his, his speed that he rapped and so eloquently i was like that's Simon. his name is mc vapor he's very notorious you know this, this day in rap and stuff like that you hear him his talent's amazing i was happy to have an involvement in i wouldn't say discovering him because he was already you know kind of sort of semi-known but you know yep. just not invested in you know yep. and i had this deal where i could help him you know and i said you know i said you know what i gotta invest in him he's great you know so we put the money down and we invested in him trying to get him you know people to make a great album and you know he spent you know quite a while working with us and great making records and you know i got him out and got some got, got a first video out and um got him all the press and you know and uh you know helped made him visible I couldn't say I helped make him a star. I mean, he went on to do his thing, but I did give him a lot of good press and get his face out there and, mm. you know, help make him notorious. And I'm really happy I had a, a hand in his career. You know, we're still cool as, you know, as well now. Um, and then eventually, um, walking away from me and now, I, uh, found myself working for a reggae label called Jet Star Records. And it was in this scenario that I ended up singing again because what happens is like, Jetstar was kind of on the doorstep for me. I live in East Acton and, uh, you know, Jetstar, they're just literally in Acton. And my uncle-in-law, Smokey, he said, um, you know, um, he used to take me to that label when he used to buy records and take records there to sell, you know. He, so he had a record shop and he would mm. go there, you know, for, you know, he would take records for them to release and also buy records so that he can have in the shop, you know. So I kind of got known to going into the reggae label and um, I met the guy, Mr. Palmer. He was the head of the label at the time and kind of loosely got cool with him. And eventually one day I just walked in and said, I, I like a job. <laughs> and they said, what can you do? I said, well, you know, I'm good with sales, you know. Um, he said, okay, we'll give you a sales executive position. I was like, happy, man. I, I got a job with Jetstar, you know, this is a reggae label. It's so cool. You know I mean, I, you know, got this job myself. It's a funny story with Jetstar. It was really um, interesting. Um, I worked with them for a while. I mean, everything was running smooth for a while. And then next day, one day I came in, um, a guy came in and they started seizing computers, like literally taking computers. Like, what's going on? Yeah. They went into administration, <laughs> literally right where, right when I was working one day. I was like, you know, I was like, hold up. <laughs> Am I going to wow. have a job? Wow. You know, they folded. I couldn't believe it. It was like, and they were legendary labels. So I didn't believe that that could actually happen. But 
it was happening right in front of me. And, you know, I got my, you know, I got my servant pay and all of that, you know, but it was just sad that it, you know, a job that I thought I'd have a long way to go with Jetstar, you know, yes. and literally my daughter is going to be a long, a long term thing. But anyway, it's good that it fizzled out because it helped me get back into being an artist. And what happened? The guy who was A&R at Jetstar, he kept nagging me. He said, you know, something about, you know, um, you know do you sing? And I I was kind of like not really trying to talk about that for a while. But then he, he really, really got it out of me one day. So I, he had a big, big, brash Jamaican accent. You know, his name's D, D Leng. And um, his, his uncle's legendary in, in the whole reggae field back in Jamaica. You know, and D had just such a thick accent. But he was, you know, you know he tried to talk to me and say, you got, you know, um, I know you got something in the brother. You know, it's like so, so patois, you know. And he kept nagging me. He said, I'll, I'll go here in the studio. I like, you know, yeah, yeah, I hear you, man, but I'm, I ain't trying to do it, you know. But eventually he did get me in the studio. And um, the record that we got done was sort of breakout record that kind of reintroduced me into music as a solo artist. Um, it was an experiment between dance hall and um, an R&B. You know, he had this producer called Alchemist and they had a beat that I was just sitting there and I, I kind of fused the ideas of, 112 and um you know r&b writing mm -hmm. on the track you know? and it became known as i'd like to know and i was like okay you know i was thinking of i was thinking of mario you should let me know you should um you should let me love you that kind of idea you know but i was always listening to 112 and you know kevin little i just broke out with you know his um turn me on single i tried to just kind of work where i'm at and my head was around 112 it went in between that vein on dance hall yeah when it dropped i was like whoa and people said, yeah, you know, it's like 112 on, on, on dancehall. I was like, cool. I really appreciate that. It was a nice experiment. You know, I didn't really know where I was going at the time. Yeah. Oh, and that was my first single that kind of let me sit in reggae. And because I couldn't write to Calypso. I couldn't really. I mean, I wrote to Calypso, but I rapped to it, you know. But I couldn't yes. find an RM ace in Calypso to to write love songs, you know. And. I do know that when I wrote the album for New Creation, that love songs is kind of what kind of flowed out of me very easily. And, uh, you know, we we did some uh, experimental things, but the ideas that came from me, like, you know, all love related and I love Marvin Gaye and, you know, and Michael Jackson and, you know, um, Chris Mayfield. What I didn't find myself listening to was a lot of Bob Marley, but finally I found myself in reggae and it's uh, taking me down this, you know, reggae route. So you released that single and how then did that journey to the current day. So how long ago was that? And what was the next steps? It was like, okay, where do I find myself going as an artist? You know, D was, D was pushing, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you got to follow it up, you know, come up with some other ideas, you know, he was constantly trying to get me to work with other people and, and things like that. And then he came up, I can't remember who found the idea first, but the ghetto boys had worked with the single, and I, all I, I can't remember the single name, but I remember yeah. But I do remember the um, the track was kind of looped from what Mark Morrison used for his single. I remember those kind of music was around bouncing around, and I was like, okay, this is an R&B group, but I'm focusing on reggae here. And then somewhere along the line, the lyrics came to me, you know, sort of a a, a dancehall type swing and yeah. I came up with a single ghetto girl right 
um, you know, Queen in the Ghetto was a single that came up. And I was like, whoa, I just wrote the song. Got a kind of dance or swing, but it came from a hip hop kind of bounce. You know, how do I get it to where it needs to go? Because it was a hip hop beat. Didn't really want to work on a hip hop track. But somewhere along the line in my little networking swings, I met this producer called Livingston Brown. And Livingston Brown produced Maxi Priest. You know, the manager who I met in this, in this seminar, he said he managed Livingston Brown. And managed Maxi Priest. So I was desperate to work with either one of them. And he came for me to work with Livingston Brown. I said I had a single that I, you know, song that I wrote. Livingston was, that was his sound. Reggae is what I was like, okay. So we, we went there with the single, you know, um, I had all the lyrics and ideas in my head. Ghetto Girls is amazing. It's a work of art now that I could keep on listening to. I remix it over and over and over several times, you know, because it's just a song that's kind of, it's a winner for me, you know. Um, and the way it came about, I'm really happy. It charted for me in the, in the UK. Um, and it's like years after I had it produced, it was my first chart in single, you know, in the black music, in the urban music charts, you know. And, uh, you know, I was like really happy that I did that because it was like, it didn't date here that I produced it such a while back. And when I released it, 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 it went, I think we got to number seven, um, top 10, um, urban music charts. And, uh, from there, I like, this is my journey. I think, okay, I'm walking the route of reggae and, uh, and R&B kind of, you know, swing and stuff like that, I'd, I'd like to know. And then I had, you know, Ghetto Girls. Um, and then eventually what happened, I, I was looking for a remix of Ghetto um, Ghetto Girl. And I've heard about a remixer called Kay Warren. I called him up and said, hey, you know, can you work with me on a remix here for Ghetto Girl? And, um, and he did an amazing Garage remix. Garage, you know, still was a prominent music of the day. And Garage was his field. And he said, um, yeah, I'll happily do it, you know. Yeah. I'm really happy with it. He did. But two work with Kay Warren led to my next single because he being a garage remixer, that was what his trade was, you know, but he had a single, he had a, a beat that he had a layabout in his, you know, his, his files that he never did anything with. And he said, I got this track here and I'd love it to, you know, I'd love to show it to you because um, you're kind of doing reggae and I have no one else to show it to. He, I listened to it immediately. I fell in love with it. Uh, it came my next single called Loved Up. And by the time I did Loved Up, I had already, being a hustler, I am, I hustled myself into working for Metropolis Studios, which was not far from where I lived. Became um production executive for, for Metropolis. And in this complex, I mean, um, magic happens there. Rihanna recorded there, you know, Mark Ronson records there, you know, Scissor Sisters, everyone, you know, come there. Adele, you know, they've mastered there. They work there. This is a mega complex of, of where talent happens, you know. And I was happy to get the job. One of them networking nights, a guy called Winston Saylor came to, comes across, you know, my radar and he just gives me his card. I followed him up. Next thing you know, Winston Saylor is the hit songwriter for Maxi Priest, who wrote Close to You, his biggest hit. Must be fake, was met, you know. I'm working on a single called Loved Up. I'd love to see if you, you know, would like an input on it. You know, Winston had like eight number ones to his name. Having somebody who could write, you know, so well, you know, it could only be amazing, you know, to my credit. And I was like, yeah, he, he agreed. He was willing. He came down to the studio with Kay Warren and then, you know, we worked on the single. I already done a draft of it and Winston gave his input. And it was one of the most beautiful pieces of work I've come, come across, you know. Um, Loved Up, I'm very happy with it to stay, you know. Got great remixes of it. And yeah, so don't, you know, loved up at, um, ghetto girl. And I'd like to know they were the first, you know, pieces of work that kind of journeyed me, you know, through the walk of reggae and R&B making and, and it kind of took me to where I am now. So I... coach, coach, you mentioned a whole bunch of different genres of music. You mentioned reggae, dancehall, hip hop, rap, R&B. 
So is there any specific that is your favorite to create for, or it just happens in the flow of the moment that you decide, okay, cool. This is what this song is going to be about. Like I said, I wanted to, I wanted to call myself, a, you know, a reggae artist, right? Mm. Cause a lot of reggae influences come around me, right? Yes. R&B, it easily rolls out me, you know, um, um, reggae, I don't work with every reggae beat that comes across my path, you know, it has to kind of have the right components in it. And sometimes it does have to have an element of R&B that I really want to gel to because a lot of people tried to see if they could get me to write to um, like a social type reggae, you know, that conscious type listening. And I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't come with me. I, you know, I think I, th- I see myself technically as a love man. Uh, I don't say that um, easily because I'd like to think that I have covered some things that cross issues. But yeah, I, te- I, te- I do work a template of staying around Caribbean. So that leads me to my next question. I know if I had to ask you this in two days, two weeks, two hours, I know your answer will be different every single time. I understand yeah. that and I recognize that. Mm. But if you had to push play to five songs by other artists, once we have finished this conversation, what would those five songs be and by whom? Marvin Gaye, start there. I love Marvin Gaye. What's going on? Masterpiece, you know. I think when I heard Marvin Gaye, I was revolutionized, you know, with how... It came together, the strings, the, the soul on the record, you know. Another record that I wasn't listening to as an artist, but I realized that he appealed to me. Um, of course, my, um, Bob Marley, right? And, you know, jamming. I completely love. I I love Michael Jackson. Greatest one for me that I could listen to. And maybe because the way Quincy wrote it, you know. The Lady in My Life, yeah. Melodies, the way it worked. A last record, <laughs> but Wonderwall from Oasis, you know, okay. um, yep. break, breakout track. It showed another side to me that I didn't know appealed to me. I love, I like rock. Oasis were the, the big thing at the time. So Kojo, the podcast is listened to throughout the world. So as a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? I'd like to say big up to Jethro Sharon for introducing me to you, Barrett. That's yes. big, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? big part of my career, the, the way we met. I'd like to say thank you to my wife, who's also been a big part of, you know, me keeping in music. She's my biggest advocate and sometimes my worst enemy. It strengthens me, you know. Smokey Joe has been a big part of, you know, my career. Uh, Eddie Grant, much of that, I don't get to talk to him. He had a big, big influence in where I am now. Ian Riley, who was the manager who helped us out of Trinidad and Tobago, you know, and helped our group become visible forever thankful even though he's not a manager in my life he's still a good friend and uh you know i'm thankful that he's a part of where i am now rip who looked after us in new york you know um his mother's diane stout winston sailor who's been a great pal and songwriting buddy and my mother most of all my mother i cannot get by without even saying thank you to mom she's been you know my biggest fan my mother-in-law yes jackie you know uh, there's lots of people, you know, um, I'd love to mention. 